Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Hi, I'm with uh, Daniel Moss. He's executive director of Agroecology Fund. He's been on a mission for over three decades doing the work of all things sustainable with an emphasis on community development, human rights, agroecology, and more. His journey has taken him to places as far as El Salvador and Mexico, where he's lived for over five years. Um, it all began by becoming an expert in helping folks uh, develop and implement their own visions for community development, knocking on doors in public housing, tenant programs in, uh, in Boston, listening to folks, nuts and bolts kind of community organization. It's a microcredit cooperative cattle ranching in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Um, and by his own admission, he's seen some train wrecks and he's had a lot of success. And now he's the executive director of the Agriculture Fund. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Uh, hello to all your listeners. Thank you very much. Listen, first, tell us the very short version of Agroecology Fund, because it's a it's a term that people may or may not be familiar with. And it seems uh, it seems intuitive what it might be. But why don't you fill us in on that? Sure. Um, well, let, let's just start with the, the word itself, agroecology. So two words there uh, compounded agriculture and uh, ecology. And I mean, it, you know, it's it's it, it's a simple idea that uh, agro uh, agriculture should take place in an ecological context, which sounds like a simple idea. The idea <laughs> being that we live, you know, we all live in this ecosystem, and then if we want to grow food, we should pay attention to what's around us. Over the last hundred years or so, we've gotten into this idea that you know it doesn't really matter what the soil looks like. It doesn't really matter what the plants uh, around look like. In fact, it's better to kind of raise clean the environment, you know, throw a bunch of uh, herbicides down, get rid of the pests, uh, add fertilizer instead of thinking about natural fertility. So agroecology is really just, a, okay, where, where do we sit here? What, what does our uh, local ecosystem provide and how can that enhance the ability to grow food and fiber um, rather than needing to destroy nature and uh, work against it? Yeah, so what, what does the organization actually do then, your, your organization, Agriculture? Well, so this is a, an, an initiative that um, came to pass amongst uh, some philanthropic organizations in the U.S. and in Europe. So these are foundations, you know, these are uh, uh, legally constituted foundations whose main business is grant making. So these are organizations that are seeking to provide support to on-the-ground practitioners that are doing great work advancing um, improving the livelihoods of their uh, constituents, uh, working on human rights issues, working on soil science, et cetera, et cetera. So these foundations came together and said, look, agroecology is a, is a cool thing. It's a great thing. Let's put our resources together. Uh, let's learn together about what works in terms of expanding agroecology around the planet. And let's attract other donors. So really the idea of the Agroecology Fund is to set up a vehicle which <coughs> Um, that will invite more investment in agroecology um, and uh, do what we need to do to, to really make it the foundation of the new food system of the future. Well, it sounds exciting. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But uh, because I wanted to, I, I, I'd like to establish your context, uh, how you, you, how did you get to doing this kind of work? It doesn't sound like the stuff you would automatic, that would automatically come from knocking on tenant doors in, in Boston public housing. 
Well, even worse, Mark, I have to admit that I'm a, uh, I'm a child of uh, Long Island, New York in the suburbs. So uh, it, I didn't really have much of a green thumb. I didn't have much exposure to anything <laughs> green or anything having to do with uh, my own food uh, production. I think, um, you know, what, what, what I'd say is a couple of things. One is, you know, you mentioned this door knocking in, uh, in Boston public housing. I mean, the foundation of community organizing is really listening to people. So going out in the community saying, what, what kind of problems are you facing and how do you want to work together to resolve them? Um, I did that in a very urban context and, you know, worked on issues like housing conditions and improving social services to um, uh, marginalized communities here in Boston. But I was at the same time attracted to uh, going down to El Salvador uh, during that period that we're talking quite a while ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, at a time when there were civil wars across Central America. Um, and, you know, issues of food and food security were prominent for these communities that I was working with. These are communities displaced by, by war and conflict. And really the question is for them was, well, how do you, how do you want to grow your food and how can you work together to improve your, um, the health of your community, the nutrition, the health of the soil, you know, really build a resilient, sustainable future? And I think what we, we found in, in talking to people is people wanted to come together in a, um, working in sustainable agriculture um, in a, you know, a, a technique that we're talking about here today called agroecology. So it's really a, a, a listening exercise um, and helping people form cooperatives. You mentioned you know, microcredit, et cetera. I mean, these are really, we're looking at strategies that are um, gonna bring prosperity to, to rural families and also importantly, link these rural families with the urban markets. So consumers increasingly also, if you listen to them, are concerned about food safety, they're concerned. Right genetically modified organisms, et cetera, et cetera. So they're looking to work to, to source their food from producers that are really looking out for their own uh, well-being yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for a lot of people, one of the confusing issues is, and you've touched on it, is if you use the word, what is sustainable, and then you start listening to people about what makes something sustainable, it's all, there, there are so many interrelated uh, variables, food, uh, personal, physical security, human rights, justice, access to, to resources, all these sorts of things. Let's, uh, 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 let's focus a second on, on consumption. Uh, when people think, I mean, when an ordinary, you know, American sort of thinks about uh, food, uh, particularly in the developing world context, it, I think they often think about lack of food or, or food scarcity. Uh, and I know you know that that's one of the main problems, but what are the, what are the main problems you're trying to actually address through agroecology? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, just to stand that, you know, not to diminish that, you know, farmers, what they're looking for is, you know, uh, a reasonable income to feed their families. Um, they're also looking for good health uh, as, as well as we talked about with the consumers. So I think yields and productivity, you know, and, and income are, are, of course, essential. Um, but there's other things that we, you know, in, in our interest in, in to, to uh, increase productivity, you know, we've invited uh, Monsanto and other agribusiness um, concerns or their enterprises to really sell us their products that really have an exclusive focus on, on uh, productivity. And again, um, you know, that, that is an important measure of, of improvements. But we're also looking at sustainability, the word you mentioned for, and, and you know, what, what is sustainability? And sustainability, for example, one, one thing would have to have to do with uh, availability and quality of water and soil. Um, so the, an important measure of sustainability would be, are we really helping build the soil health so that it can sustain 
food production for generations and generations to come. We don't want to leave our grandkids with some, you know, soils that are degraded, that are incapable of, of providing them with food in the future. Same with our, our water. Um, our waters are increasingly contaminated, um, largely due to these industrial inputs that have contaminated water, too much nitrogen, too many dead zones in our oceans. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of compounding problems that result from industrial agriculture and its impact on our water sources. So we're, we're looking at, at nutritional impacts. We're looking at um, environmental protection impacts, you know, sort of stewardship, conservation of our natural resources for long-term viability. Um, we're looking at prosperity in terms of incomes. Um, these are kind of some of the main things that we're looking at. And, you know, I think, but you have to throw biodiversity in there too. We're looking for the idea that there are, you know, we, we human beings are, are uh, you know, we're, we're quite a species. Uh, we're really <laughs> quite intelligent. We're quite amazing. Um, but we, we neither deserve to, to eradicate the other species around us, um, nor do we want to be silly enough to think that we know better than the natural systems. So yeah, yeah. That we can favor those natural systems, keep them healthy and vibrant, bring them into our agricultural processes so that we understand the relationship between a forest, for example, and a field of corn. Uh, the mm. forest might provide some pollinators, the forest provides some soil moisture. Um, there's all kinds of complementarities that are amazing. All the microbiology in the soils that we, we cannot possibly replicate. Um, yeah, yeah that's true. But we, we are not God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've done some, as many people know, I've done some work for the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And you know, you stumble across these amazing things like uh, micronutrients. And they go, oh, that's great. I said, well, how does that work? Well, you put these micro amounts of nutrients. I said, but, well, this is great. Why can't it work everywhere? And they said exactly the same as you just said, is we can't replicate the amazing biodiversity within the soil itself, within a forest, within a field or whatever. But listen to me. Uh, you talked about, I was trying to steer you towards consumption, but you wanted to talk about production. So I have a, I ha it's okay. It's okay because... I have a quote I wanted to read to you and get your feedback on. It's by Jayati Ghosh, um, and it's in Eating Tomorrow. Uh, the answer to modern global food problems seems simple. Loosen the grip of big corporations over production, distribution, and consumption, and give small farmers the room to produce sustainably. Uh, if we're talking, moving away from big uh, uh, commercial uh, food production systems and moving towards a people-owned food system, is, is it realistic to expect that uh, all these millions of small farmers can produce uh, organically or within sync of the agroecology food for everybody in this world? Uh, great questions. Well, let me just for for a minute just uh, something that I read recently that really struck me is there's a new Lancet report um, that really talks about the the foundations of a healthy diet and a healthy diet deriving from a lot of uh, plant diversity, uh, also protein diversity in our in our in our meat sources. Um, but that you know what we have found in in the industrial system is that a, a, a kind of a over the years, a narrow, much narrower focus of the kinds of foods that we're eating, you know, mostly based on corn, soy, wheat. Um, and what this study says, as the study says, is that if we want to avoid things like malnutrition and obesity, we really need to think about a balanced diet based on the, the, the plants that we're kind of neglecting and that are particularly neglected by some of the big um, international food businesses that you mentioned. 
um, because it's just a whole lot easier for them to focus on just a few commodities and our whole, it's not just on the production end, but our whole um, marketing, uh, retail, et cetera, is all based on the, you know, kind of narrowing our, our, our food options. So I think one of the, you know, the great advantages of, of the small farmer community that you mentioned is that, you know, these are folks that are kind of traditionally working with local varieties that are adapted to certain ecosystems um, that have, you know, important nutritional aspects to it. And I think you having more adventurous eaters that are saying, well, we really want to, we want to go for that. Uh, that's, that sounds like it's going to make me a, a lot healthier. And of course, you know, that's the, the bottom line is us living uh, healthy lives. So I think that, you know, there are certainly challenges, uh, you know, I don't want to diminish the challenge. I mean, we, we have, we, we, we're now, you know, eating a lot of our food from, for example, Walmart and Costco, et cetera. And they all have their suppliers that are, you know, some large farms, et cetera. So there needs to be a significant rebooting of our system in order to really favor small producers that are growing a variety of foods. Um, can it be done? Oh, by, by, you know, by all means. Part of it too is that we have some perverse subsidies in our structure that are in our system that are providing public dollars to some of these large commodity farmers. Why don't we shift those structures to incentivize the small producers that are growing healthier right. food? That's right. not, that's a political system. It's, it's easy to solve. It's, I mean, it's not easy to solve. <laughs> it's easy to solve in the sense that, you know, somebody could flip a switch and, and, and change the policy. It, if, if somebody could switch it. Well, what do you make of the fact that, you know, if when confronted with this whole idea of the Green New Deal, the GOP say, oh, they want to take our hamburgers from us. It's incredible to watch the reaction of that. Yeah, there are people, um, yeah, you, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, stealing people's hamburgers. That's a, an important uh, little um, soundbite that you're hearing these days. Um, yeah, there's a, all I can say is that there's a lot of self-interest in there that are, you know, be behind those statements, uh, you know, the, the beef lobby, there's all kinds of, you know, lobbying going on, um, you know, not that different from what's happening in fossil fuels when as people talk about energy sources, the fossil fuels, oh, you know, what are you, you're kind of uh, throwing us back into the dark ages, you don't want uh, take advantage of all the modern technology that we've developed in these, past, you know, in the course of the last couple of centuries. So. I think, you know, yeah, to, to, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, there's no question there are, there will need to be some rethinking about our consumption habits. Uh, you know, hopefully we can find some hamburger substitutes for people that they'll be satisfied with. But there's some really amazing thinking about, for example, grazing. You know, part of the thing is we have these uh, big confined uh, animal feeding operations. There's ways to integrate uh uh, animal rearing with a man a, a well-managed landscape that's actually going to have good income outcomes for the animals for the eaters and for the pastures and the forests so it's it's not you know let let's let's not throw out throw the whole model out um, because there might be some things at the end in terms of reducing uh, for example meat consumption let's talk about sustainable systems that are really the agroecology the exciting thing about it is that it's a it's an experimental science and it's very locally adapted so you know, if we're saying, okay, we want to eat meat, okay, how can we eat meat, how can we raise our animals humanely and ecologically um, in a way that works? And I think we, we have all the tools at our, exposure, uh, at our disposal to tackle that problem. We have the great producers, we have great scientists, um, we have innovative, uh, we have new stores, new farmers markets, we have all kinds of ways to be in conversation with consumers to meet their needs 
but in a way that's not wrecking our planet. Right. Um, so there is some comfort out there for hamburger eaters in the future. <laughs> Maybe just not as much as they want. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be right back with Daniel Moss, Executive Director of the Agroecology Fund. We're going to listen to a little of the, oh, rather, Los Folkloristas, uh, singing about life in the Mexican countryside. This song is called Raiz Viva. We were listening to a little of Los Folkloristas, uh, a Mexican folkloric band that uh, plays a lot of songs about the Mexican countryside. Today we're talking with Daniel Moss. He's the executive director of the uh, Agroecology Fund. I want to ask you a question. I, my wife and I started watching CNN when um, all this, uh, <laughs> when the Brett Kavanaugh stuff started happening. We never watched it before. And we started seeing these uh, commercials on TV, and I'm not sure what to make of them. And I, I really wanted to ask your, your thoughts about them. You know, it shows these people reaching into their refrigerators and, and pulling out a carton of what looks like incredibly fresh food, very diverse fruits and or vegetables, and they just sort of make a li uh, liquado, a uh, milkshake out of it. I don't know mm -hmm. what that is in English. And it's delivered to their door. And I go to my wife, I said, this is crazy. Why should... And she said, maybe there's some sense to it. Maybe we don't know. What, what do you make of these, you know, sort of food box delivery systems where people, uh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the blue aprons and, and such. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's a new uh, yeah, a boutique industry now to make uh, busy people's lives easier by uh, delivering <laughs> ingredients to your door. Right, exactly. I, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag for sure. Um, let's see, on, on, the, on the level of food miles, you know, kind of uh, how far that food has to travel, what are the costs in delivering it to your door, right. it's kind of a, a negative. On the other hand, you balance that with, you know, how much time would you have, uh, fuel would you have spent going to the store to pick up those ingredients? You know, you kind of have to do that math. Mm -hmm. uh, I think on food waste side, maybe there's a benefit there. You're gonna, if they, give you the proper proportions, you're going to waste less food. And we know mm -hmm. food 
the big problem out there. I mean, on the whole, uh, you know, it's not my style, Mark. Uh, <laughs> sounds like it's not your style either. No. But, uh, um, and I and and it may be one of these things that we really need to rethink. I think the the the, the advantage is just this idea that being thoughtful about what you're eating. Uh, you know, it would depend a lot about how those companies are sourcing their food. And, you know, I'd be delighted if they were sourcing their food within 10 miles and then having it at a certain pickup point, you know, more like the community supported agriculture model that's uh, emerging, where there's a lot of contact with local farmers, assembling boxes of uh, root right. vegetables and fresh vegetables, maybe even pre-prepared meals. So I'm not crazy about the Amazon delivered things, but the idea that you would be working with consumers to figure out what they want and making it available. Uh, for better or worse, that's kind of a trademark of our current system. Yeah, well, it, no, for me, uh, Daniel, it's all mixed up in this whole uh, broader discussion that, you know, what the hell are we doing in terms of our lives? We're so busy, we can't fix ourselves a simple meal. We're so busy, we can't go interact with the folks that actually produce our foods. I'm a big, I mean, if I could only shop at a farmer's market, I would do that. Now, I know that's not realistic for a lot of people, but it speaks to the broader model about how we're basically living both emotionally, both rather, we're living emotionally, spiritually, and economically and environmentally unsustainable lives. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a sad fact, as you say, that you know, uh, some of us have that that privilege of being close to the land and being close to our food supply. Some of us live in very dense urban environments where a green space is is it doesn't exist, and even that kind of basic contact with nature, you know, even understanding, you know, it it is a sad fact that when you ask a lot of young people where their food comes from, they don't necessarily know. <laughs> Milk comes, no, some people, it was, I saw a study, like 30% of kids didn't know milk came from cows. You know, and I think the other thing that's sad about it, and and I think we have to, you know, figure out how we can help people reconnect with this, the rhythms of, of, of nature and the rhythms of food production. So for example, right now, and you might remember, uh, this is mango season in Mexico. And uh, it's a wonderful thing because the price of mango goes from inaccessible to accessible and everybody is mango happy. We're doing the mango dance right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I remember growing up and you know, it'd be cherries for us in in, yeah. in, in West Coast Canada. It's like the cherries and the apricot, those were seasonal fruits. We didn't get those in the winter time in the sixties and seventies. And it, it's a joy. I mean, the marginal returns, economically speaking, to uh, apricot in August is 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 fantastic because you've waited all year. Listen, right. I, wa- I wanted to I wanted to ask you uh, one final question, um, and it sort of goes back to production. It, there are absolutely millions and millions of small farmers around the world. The majority of which, like ninety percent of which, are in developing countries. Uh, the production of food is on the backs of women, increasingly so. And I want to know, what are some of the issues that we need to be paying attention to uh, with the production of food and these family and women in, in small farms? Yeah, no, I mean, women are, are, are the backbone of, of, of farming families. Uh, in some cases, they're the primary uh, farmer. Um, in other cases, they're playing an important support role. Um, as the world, as we see this kind of out-migration from rural areas where there's a lot of failed family farms, 
a lot of the men and the boy, the, the fathers and the boys are migrating to other countries in search of work and setting up a kind of uh, very different kind of economy where they're sending back remittances into the rural areas to sustain the families. Uh, the women are, are, are there, uh, you know, gardening and farming. Um, so we actually work, the Agroecology Fund works quite a bit with women's organizations in rural areas that are, in some cases, it's direct, you know, credit to women farmers. In some cases, it's community plots. Um, where women are working together on farming, where they're building um, and new enterprises. So I think that, you know, and, and importantly in that whole configuration is the idea that women's um, land rights and their land titles should be secure so that they have some stability in their farming operations. So it's, it's really critical. Um, I, I'd say I just wanted to return just really quickly, and, and, and this, this is an area where also you can, you can help women farmers, is just this getting back to the public policy portion. Um, and, you know, it, depending on the place public policies can have a tremendous impact. So for example, you could have policies that enable, you know, soft credit to women farmers so that they can invest in their agroecological enterprises. You can also have purchasing programs. Um, you know, there's all school feeding programs are ubiquitous around the world. It's a fantastic program to provide, you know, lunches and breakfast to school children. These kind of programs can intentionally purchase from women farmers, from local farmers. They don't need to be, you know, using food donated uh, by the United States from Midwest grain farmers that run through the World Food Program. I mean, there's other ways to do it. So I think we need to be, as we think about these policies, we need to think about what sorts of farmers we're looking to uphold, what sorts of farmers we're looking to support so that we develop the kind of uh, rural economies and connections with consumers that we think is is viable and sustainable okay uh daniel i know you're coming down my way uh soon to mexico to a, a very interesting sounding uh event can you tell us a little bit about that sure yeah i mean this is a thank you for asking um mexico is going to be home to something called the first national mexico agroecology congress uh coming up in mid-may and this is a congress being hosted by i believe it's a couple of universities down in san cristobal de las casas in chiapas the idea being that the the new government of uh andre manuel andres manuel lopez Obrador, the new governor uh president of mexico has seen some of the problems that have been happening in the rural economy in mexico i mean <laughs> we can get into a long conversation about trade issues and trump and and Lopez Obrador, the, the out-migration of farmers from broken farms in Mexico going north. Well, the, the new president has a, an idea that, well, let's invest in the small farms of Mexico and let's invest in ways that are healthy for the landscape and healthy for the families. So they're pulling together this interesting Congress, um, really composed of uh, academics, farmers, researchers, government policymakers, and we're gonna sit down together and there's gonna be a lot of discussion about how to map out an agroecological future for Mexico. Well, this would be uh, really quite a, an undertaking. Um, it's gonna, it's, there's nothing, you know, there's no magic bullets, it's a long transition, it's very politically fraught, but it's a great start and I'm really looking forward to participating in the event. And on our end, on the Agroecology Fund, the end that we're looking at is how do we bring money into this? Um, because we know that all this agroecological um, development, all this support needed to, to small farmers uh, costs money. Uh, and we're really interested in moving uh, as, as much as we can, moving philanthropic dollars, but also moving public dollars into agroecology. Oh, that's, fa that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I might even take the trip down there and see what it's all about. Listen, how do people uh, get more information on the agriculture? 
uh, on your uh, organization? Yes, we're uh, on the great uh, internet uh, at uh, www.agroecologyfund.org. Um, yep. So give us a visit. See, you know, you, you can get a sense of some of the amazing organizations we support from Pakistan to the Philippines to uh, Southern Africa to South America. So uh, you can see really, I mean, what, what makes us most proud and happy is the great privilege of supporting some fantastic organizations around the world that are really amplifying um, agroecology, making this the, the, the anchor of our food system. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you uh, for coming out today and, and talking with us, Daniel. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Okay, we've been listening to Daniel Moss, Executive Director of the Agroecology Fund. You can get a hold of them, as he just said, at agroecologyfund.org. And uh, look for local farmers in your area to support them and uh, keep tuning in. Thanks a lot. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out the Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.